Well, I'm on the screen there. Why don't you, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. As you see there, I'll be reading to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. This is the temptation of Christ, and um, so important. Matthew records for us, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your feet, your foot rather, against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then, Satan to him, said to him, or then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you for the temptation of Christ, an absolute necessity as the Redeemer, the Savior, and the second, the last Adam. I pray that the truth of all this, the necessity of it would dawn upon us, and that, Lord, that we would rejoice in your victory. And, Lord, we also pray for Bill and his family, Lord. Uh, Lord, no one knows loss like you do, and no one knows joy like you do. So I pray, Lord, that in your kindness that you would abide with them, that you would comfort them and give them strength in the days of head, Lord. I just pray that in their grief and their sorrows, Lord, that you would be glorified even in that. Encourage the hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, please be seated. Please uh, go back to verse 1 and 2, if you would. So then, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness, pay attention to the language, to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, Matthew makes the most obvious statement in the universe. Jesus was hungry. Okay. He was hungry. Now, in the narrative so far, the Holy Spirit, of course, he has recently, at the baptism of Jesus, rested upon him to empower him for his messianic mission, to empower him. And he has now led Jesus into the wilderness in order for him to be tempted by the devil. But not just to be tempted by the devil, but to be tempted at a time when Jesus was most vulnerable. And maybe that's only true for men, that when the tummy is empty, you're vulnerable. But he comes to Jesus in his vulnerability. He's hungry. Uh, he's also weak. What a, a person looks like after 40 days of fasting, uh, who knows? Uh, also being in the heat of the desert, the dryness, all of that. Uh, Jesus is at his weakest point, of course, that he's ever been in his life. And um, certainly not easy what he's about to face. And it, it just cannot be overlooked that the Holy Spirit 
led Jesus to this place for this purpose. It's in the text, isn't it? He's there for this purpose. The language in Mark's gospel is even stronger, saying that the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, which is the desert, Mark 1, 12. But we understand from this that Jesus had a divine appointment with Satan, with Satan, or perhaps Satan had an appointment with him. Either way, it's going to be a showdown, and there's only going to be one victor, and this will prove to be the beginning of a series of encounters that will end one day with Jesus, well, stomping on Satan's head, according to prophecy, from which he will not recover. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, he will not recover. Uh, There's some very bad blood between these two. Uh, They have a beef that goes back all the way to the beginning, and now their hatred for one another comes to the forefront. I did say hatred. Okay, yeah. In fact, from the beginning until this time, Satan uh, was trying to annihilate Jesus' ancestors to avoid this encounter with him. If Satan could destroy the messianic bloodline, he could stop all of this before it started, but he failed, and here they are, arch enemies, they're face to face in the desert. And what is happening is a cosmic conflict at this point. Okay. But Jesus, at this point, is not permitted by his father, at this time, to trample Satan into the dust. He has to stand there and take it. But this whole encounter, it was necessary, it was planned. But why? Why? Why would this be planned? Why was it necessary for the Son of God to be tempted by the devil? Now, uh, I want to explore that with you this morning because it has great import both for uh, Christian theology and to our individual experience as Christians, as the author of Hebrews, uh, looking back at this, uh, has much to say. Uh, but before we do that, I want to take a look real quick at the concept of temptation. temptation, And then we'll look at the greater context of Scripture to explain the purpose for Jesus being here at this moment. So the word tempt really means to test. But the context itself and the one doing the testing determines the nature of it. So when you see test or tempt, typically it's the same word, but it depends on who is doing the testing. And then you know what is really behind all of it, okay? And here, because Satan is the one doing the testing in our narrative, the intention, his intention is to get Jesus to sin. He wants Jesus to stray from his Father's will. Just as when you are tempted, the goal, Satan's goal, is to get you to stray, to sin against the Father's will. But God himself, as we understand from James, he doesn't tempt anyone to sin, but he does, he does permit Satan to tempt us. And God doesn't cause him to do that, doesn't coerce that. But he does expose us to what Satan does in the world. And, and as we know, this world currently belongs to Satan. Paul says he's the God of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. So if you live in this world, guess what? You're subject to his tempting. Okay? But God never entices us to sin by what he puts in our path, uh, by what he presents in our lives, James 1.13. But Satan is always enticing people to sin. Well, God uses circumstances, situations to prove our character. Do we like either one? I don't like to be tempted. 
I don't like to be tested either. How about you guys? I just want to be left alone. I just want blessed. (laughs) Oh, man. In our text, of course, God has exposed his son to Satan's testing in order to, tempting in order to prove Jesus, to prove him. Satan is looking for his failure. So why was it necessary that Jesus be tempted by the devil? Two things. To succeed where Adam failed. To succeed where Adam failed. And the second one is so that Jesus, as a man, might sympathize with us and then come to our aid when we are tempted. Yeah. Let's look at at this, how it relates to Adam. Jesus' experience with Satan in the desert has everything to do with Adam's experience with Satan in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3. But when you, we look at the historical narrative in Genesis 3, we can get distracted by the encounter that is between Satan and Adam's wife, Eve. That's where all of the interaction takes place, and so it does grab our attention. In fact, Adam, from the narrative, had zero interaction with Satan. There's no discussion. There's no dialogue at all. And I think after reading a lot of what the New Testament says about that encounter, I think that Satan knew better than to face Adam head on. Mind you, Adam was God's choice to be our champion. And I think he was. I think he was. Okay. But I think Satan knew better than to face him head on, uh, seeing that he was the most cunning creature of God. It says that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So Satan entices Eve, even though it wasn't Eve that he was after. We have to understand that theologically. He was not after Eve. He was after Adam. He went to Eve, I believe, because that was the best way to get to Adam in the worst of ways. I I think any husband who adores his wife understands what I'm going to say. If someone wants to get to me in the best and the worst ways, they would have to go after my wife. She's my greatest earthly strength, and she's my greatest earthly weakness, my, my vulnerability, no doubt about it. And you can get the best and the worst out of me by way of her. And I think Satan, being cunning as he was, he knew that about Adam. He certainly didn't want the best out of Adam, but the very worst. He wanted rebellion. Satan was confident that if he could deceive Eve and get her to sin, Adam would disobey God to identify with his wife perhaps thinking that if he ate the fruit, he could take Eve's judgment upon himself. He could shield her from death. Something is going on in his hero mentality. You know any guys like that? But of course, when the effects of sin contaminated Adam's soul, he was suddenly every man for himself when God confronted him. And suddenly it was Eve's fault. So Adam, or Satan, did get to Adam, but he did it through Eve. It was dark but it was cunning. But why did Satan seek Adam's disobedience? It's for very much the same purpose for which he was seeking Jesus's disobedience. Very much the same. You see, Adam originally was created to represent all of mankind before God. He sort of was mankind. In fact, his name, Adam, is essentially identical to the Hebrew word for mankind. It is identical. The man was representing all men. Adam was representing, representing Adam. Adam. As theologians would say, Adam was our federal head. And in reality, you know, all of mankind was dwelling in Adam at that moment. He's our biological father. Yeah. 
All that we are made of was in him. Eve came from him. And so God had created Adam to represent all of us before him. So what does that mean? Well, it means this. When Adam acted, he acted for us. He acted for us. His actions were our actions so that any blessing he enjoyed through obedience to God would be imputed to us. But whatever consequences he incurred through disobedience to God would be imputed to us. Which one do you think has been imputed to mankind? (laughs) All humanity and all of creation, for that matter, would stand or fall based upon Adam's actions in the garden. You guys, the weight of the world really did rest on his shoulders. It did. And so if Satan was to bring down humanity and corrupt the world that God gave Adam to rule, Satan is going to have to bring Adam down. He would have to instigate Adam's rebellion. Well, we know the story. Adam, he bombed it, okay? He failed, which brought a curse upon humanity and upon the world that we live in. Now, there's two main passages that speak about this reality. Here they are. Um, Let me quickly address the second one first. In in Romans chapter 8, 18 through 22, Paul tells us that the whole creation, everything in the physical universe was subjected to futility, but it would someday be delivered from the bondage of corruption or decay. So what he's saying is, is the physical universe and everything in it was originally created without the process of decay, as, at least as we know it today. The second law of thermodynamics, which our world is currently subject to, is not what the world endured before Adam's fall. His sin altered the physical state of everything. Because of him, the physical world was subjected to the futility of decay. All of the usable energy in the universe is being depleted, albeit very slowly, because of Adam. There was a lot resting on his shoulders. A lot depended upon the decisions he made. The world that God gave Adam to manage was now far less manageable. Okay? Now, this, this whole subject here, it's, it's super important, but it's not the real scope of our discussion today. It is important to this overall discussion because Jesus has to handle that later as well, and he will. Okay. It's what Paul says in Romans 5 that gets the answer to our question of why it was necessary for Jesus to be tempted by Satan. So let's look at Romans 5. Uh, The text on the screen that I'll show there will come from the NIV translation because of its clarity. It's not a manuscript variation. I know some of you are translation uh, sensitive. There's no variation among the ancient manuscripts. This one is purely a different rendering in the English. Paul says, therefore, listen carefully, therefore, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. That means death was killing people even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. If you read over that, you'll miss everything that's important in all of chapter 5, the temptation of Christ, all that was going on in the garden. He, Adam, was a pattern of the one who is to come. But first, let's go back to verse 12. 
He says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I was afraid I was going to mess that up because I have it memorized in the New King James Version. Curse translation sometimes. Notice, first of all, that sin and death did not come into the world through one woman, fellas. Sin and death are in this world because of one man, and his name is Adam. Eve is not to blame for sin and death. Her husband is. Her husband is. Also, Eve was deceived by Satan. Adam, he was not. Adam knew exactly what was going on, according to Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 14, which has made his sin worse and the consequences far greater. Remember, Satan wasn't ultimately after Eve, because she wasn't created as our representative. Adam was. And if Satan was going to get the results he wanted, he would have to secure Adam's failure. Did his plan work? Very, very successful. Adam ate the fruit in rebellion against God. And just as God warned him, death came into our world. Death. God said to Adam, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, For in the day that you eat of it, which would be sin, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. So in disobedience, Adam ate, and as a result, death came into the world, just as God promised Adam, just as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Well, hold on a second. Adam didn't kill over the moment he sinned. God was incorrect. No, no. Okay, do not think of death as a state of unconsciousness without a pulse. Okay, it's a theological concept. Death means in the Bible separation. And there's three kinds of death in the Bible. It's important. The first one is spiritual death. And then there's physical death. And then there's eternal death. So real quick, in spiritual death, okay, the spirit of man is separated from fellowship with God. The, the spiritually dead person is not saved. They're alive, but they're dead. They're unregenerate. There's, there's no, because there's no peace. There's no fellowship between them and God, at least not until they repent and exercise faith in Christ. That is spiritual death. In physical death, our consciousness is separated from the body, but the soul remains conscious wherever it goes, whether it's in hell or it's in heaven. There is no state or period of time after the body expires that the soul is unconscious or asleep. So this is physical death, the separation of the soul from the body. Finally, there's eternal death. It's referred to as the second death in Revelation 21.8. That's when the body and the soul are actually reunited, even of the unbeliever, reunited and then permanently separated from God in the lake of fire. That's eternal death. That's the second death. In every form of death, there is consciousness in every form. So when Adam sinned, he remained conscious, but he still died. But the question is, which of the three forms of death did he experience? Spiritual. Spiritual death. Okay? His sin separated him from fellowship with God. The eternal life that comes only through fellowship with God was taken from him. He was now rendered dead in trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.5. Again, as a theological concept, death always means separation. In Ephesians 5, uh, Paul defines even the reversal of this death as being alive together. Death is separation. Life is together with Christ. Here's the text. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and look at this, and raised us up together and made us sit together in Christ. Where's life? Together with Christ. That's right. Yeah. Together with Christ. We were separated from God, but now by grace, we're together with him through his son. His grace united us with the one who is life. Now, if a person continues in sin separated from Christ, which is to be spiritually dead, and they die physically, their soul will be separated from their body, and it will remain conscious in hell until Revelation 19, at which time the body and the soul will be reunited and cast together in the lake of fire, where they will be conscious forever in eternal death. When Adam sinned, you guys, he introduced at that time all three realities of death into the perfect world that God had had made. He was immediately subject to spiritual death the moment he sinned, just as God said. But he didn't die physically for 930 years. Okay. He had a lot of time to think about what he did. (laughs) And I'm sure he endured a lot of complaints. (laughs) But before he died physically, God intervened, made atonement for his sin by covering him with animal skins. You see, what is implied there is then described fully later on. Okay. An innocent creature died so that Adam could live. Back to this whole representative thing. Because Adam was mankind's representative, death just didn't impact him. The consequences of his sin spread to all of us, all his descendants, because all sinned. Look again at Romans 5.12. Sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. Why? Because all sinned. Okay, Paul means that all sinned in Adam when he sinned. When he acted, we acted with him. And, there, and then therefore, the guilt of his sin was transferred to us. And with it, the consequences of sin. We suffer because of Adam. We're born separated from God. If you doubt that and you pass a background check, we will seat you in our nursery. Okay? <laughs> David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. And I was brought forth in iniquity. Okay. We're broken. We're born that way. We inherited this nature from Adam that is bent on rebellion against God. And because of Adam, we're subject not only to physical death, but spiritual death and eternal death. But notice also what Paul says in verse 14 about Adam. He says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. It reigned beyond as well. He says, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. He said there was, there was no commands, really, from Adam to Moses. But death was killing people. It kept people separated from God. Breaking a command as Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. This is sweet, you guys. This is sweet. Adam wasn't just our representative in the garden. He was also a pattern of a future representative. The New King James says that Adam was a type of him who was to come. This is great news. It means that Adam was only our first representative, not our last. Not our last. His actions would not have the final say for humanity. He was only the first actor, and he failed. But he's not the final actor. He's just a pattern. 
1 Corinthians 15, 45, Paul refers to Adam as the first Adam. It's just an interesting play on words. The man was the first man. And he refers to Jesus as the second Adam, but he's also the final one. He's the final one. This was initially hinted at almost immediately after Adam sinned. In Genesis 3.15, theologians from the very beginning of the church have called this the, 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 the first gospel, the proto-evangelion. Okay? Genesis 3.15, God promised a redeemer who would suffer at the hand of Satan, but he would ultimately destroy Satan. We know anybody like that? With all of Satan's cunning, I do not think that he saw what was coming. He, he didn't see far enough in advance. He could not see what God had planned in God's wisdom. This representative who was to come wouldn't just succeed where Adam failed. He would restore life to humanity and destroy the one who instigated our fall. This redeemer, first mentioned in Genesis 3.15, from that time on, he becomes the prominent figure of prophecy. He is the great expectation of all of scripture. In fact, Jesus himself He said, behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. It is written of me. He was God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 22. His descendant, singular, would be a blessing to every tribe, to all peoples on the earth. This one who was to come, this of whom Adam was a pattern, is the subject of Jacob's patriarchal blessing to Judah in Genesis 49, that out of the tribe of Judah would come Shiloh, to whom belongs the obedience of the people, he says. Interesting. Shiloh means place of peace. But we cannot have peace in a chaotic world until we are subject to Christ. The temple and its sacrifices, they represent this one who is to come and what he would do for humanity. His mediation for man. His sacrifice and redemption, it's all portrayed in Leviticus. This one who was to come would come out of eternity and be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2 says. His goings forth are from old, he says, from everlasting. He would be, con- he would be conceived in the womb of a virgin, Isaiah seven fourteen. The Lord would be well pleased with this one because of his righteousness. He would exalt the law and make it honorable. That's next. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. That's Isaiah 42, 21. He would be God's Messiah who would preach the gospel to the poor. He would heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the, to the captives, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But afterward, he would be forsaken and pierced through his hands and his feet, Psalm 22, discussing this with my children, that crucifixion had not been invented when those words were written. 800 years removed. Isaiah 53, he was appointed by God to be our our sin bearer. He would suffer unto death for the sins of humanity, that he might justify us from all sin. But in Psalm 16, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, he is the risen one who then enters into the presence of God for us, where there is pleasures forevermore and joy everlasting. But there's more. There's so much more. In Psalm 2, he's the son of God and he's the conquering king. The responsibility of all government will rest upon his shoulders and dominion will be given to him. Daniel 7, 13 through 14, Isaiah 9, 6. This is the one. He is the last heir to David's throne. 
securing his dynasty forever, Jeremiah 23.5 and Jeremiah 33.15. You guys, I'm merely scratching the surface of whom Adam was a pattern of. Over 300 prophecies talking about him and his first coming. Hope was lost in the first Adam, but the scriptures rest all their hope in the second. When you look at the two, you compare and contrast. I could go on for a long time, but I want to point out seven things. Just as Adam's obedience and loyalty to God was tested as our representative, so to Jesus, the second Adam is being tested. Adam was created in the image of God to represent him in the world, which would require that he remain innocent and sinless but he failed. Christ came in the image of God. Indeed, as the very Son of God, the author of Hebrews says that he's the exact replica of God's nature, and he remained innocent, and he walked in perfect obedience. He succeeded. Adam failed his bride when he accepted the fruit from her hand and ate it, but Jesus will rescue his bride from her sin and present her faultless before his throne. That's a promise, by the way. By Adam's one act of disobedience, you can read all about this in Romans 5, sin, rebellion, and death were passed on to his children. But by one act of obedience, righteousness, innocence, and life was passed on to the believer. God had given dominion of the earth over to Adam, but he surrendered it to Satan. Satan then offers Jesus dominion over the earth under the condition that he would worship Satan. Jesus refused, but when Jesus returns, he will take dominion away from Satan and rule over the earth forever. That's the second Adam. Now let's come back to our first question. Why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the desert to be tested? Because if Jesus is to be the last Adam, if he is to be the savior of the world, he must succeed where Adam failed. He has to. We need him to. Jesus must prove himself worthy to represent us before God and God to man. And now that sin is in the world, he must prove himself worthy as a sacrifice for sinners. If he fails in these three testings, he cannot go to the cross for us. It's over. It's over. And because the earth's dominion was surrendered to Satan, Jesus must prove himself worthy worthy to rule God's creation. He must succeed where Adam failed. All of the world is resting on Jesus' shoulders. All of creation at this point is holding its breath as he undergoes temptation, suffering, and ultimately the cross. Yeah. Will he succeed where our first champion failed? If he fails, all hope is lost. But if he succeeds, we succeed. His righteousness will be imputed to us who believe. His kingdom will become our kingdom. The earth will be restored to us. You guys, if he succeeds, it'll be like a country song played backwards. (laughs) It'll be a joyous melody, a song of hope and restoration, of forgiveness and reconciliation. The whole earth will be filled with his righteousness, Isaiah says, and his glory. All sin, suffering, and death will be banished. There will be no conflict between nations. There will be no discord among friends, no distance between father and son daughter and mother, all will be as God intended it to be. If Christ is found worthy, we're going to sing a new song. Now, I read from Revelation 5 last week, and some of that in the following passage is appropriate here, and I'll get you out of here. 
And John is there in heaven, he's weeping, because no one is found worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hand, who is seated on heaven's throne. But as he weeps, one of the elders comes to John and says, Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. He succeeded to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. And then in the midst of the throne stood a, lamb, uh, stood a lamb as though it had been slain. He came, he approached the father, and he took the scroll out of his hand. And the text says, now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and, a, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, just as was promised to Abraham, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. All, if everyone is recognizing that his victory is our victory. Amen. Now, I still have to answer the second question as to why Jesus was tempted. We'll cover that next Sunday as we exposit Jesus' temptation. Both are essential. Okay. So I guess you are getting out a little early. Why don't you stand up and we'll celebrate early endings. I know that I, not everybody sympathizes with me, but I think that the truth of theology is the most thrilling thing in the universe. I thank you, Lord, that you knew in advance you knew that we would, we would need a second Adam, a perfect Adam. And Lord, I thank you that your son has not failed. He has not failed you and he's not failed us. And because of his success, Lord, we have success. Lord Jesus, thank you for yielding to the Father's will and doing what we couldn't do for ourselves and rescuing us from the mess that we've made through our father Adam. And Lord, I, I pray that as you were found worthy to do all of those things, I pray, Lord, that we would, we would be found worthy, that we would walk worthy of you. Lord, help us to understand all that's been accomplished for us and help us to worship you and give you thanks. Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I pray that you would just encourage their hearts, help them to see all of this theology and just adore you for it. Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.